0: At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We invite you to join us for our series, Good Morning, as we learn from the cries of Israel recorded in the book of Lamentations. Together, we'll discover the depth of God's love for us, even in seasons of suffering, and learn to take our sorrows to the Savior. It was about 15 years ago. um around this time that I was driving in a car and I got a phone call from my wife and after a brief conversation, I hung up the phone, I punched my steering wheel as hard as I could and I yelled no into the empty void driving by myself. Just two months prior, Alicia and I had found out we were newly married, we were about four months into marriage, that uh, we were unexpectedly pregnant. I'd always wanted to be a dad. grew up with a great dad. I wanted to be a dad. I was super, super excited. But the day before I got this phone call, my wife headed out to Chicago for some work, and while she was on that trip, began to have complications. To save you the long story, the phone call that I got that evening was that she called me to inform me that the baby had passed and that she had had a miscarriage. And I remember driving in that car that night, just feeling incredibly overwhelmed. I was angry, I was sad, I didn't know how to respond. I just kept driving, kind of trying to stifle whatever the emotions, I wanted to yell, I wanted to scream, I wanted to throw something. I kept thinking to myself, how on earth could this happen? And I felt totally alone. No more alone than my wife felt in that hospital in Chicago that night. And all I could think in that moment was, God, what the hell is happening? And I don't say that flippantly. I say that literally because it felt like hell on earth for those few minutes when that phone call came through and in the hours and days ahead. Have you ever had one of those moments with God where it feels like your world's falling apart and in that moment you don't know how to relate to the pain and reality of what you're experiencing where pain just becomes so overwhelming you don't even know how to handle it and you're just trying to hold on for a minute to try to figure out what is happening and and where's God in the midst of this? You know, I, I imagine that Almost all of us have experienced a moment like this. You know, one of the privileges that I have as a pastor is I'm often invited into the places that are the hardest for people, the places most people don't want to be. I've sat with families hours after they've lost a child. I've sat in hospital rooms as I've watched a family take their mom off a ventilator knowing that she would pass. I've been with people when they've gotten the diagnosis that the cancers come back. I've had people come into my office and pour out their hearts, how the relationship that they thought they had was falling apart and they didn't know what to do. All of us go through life and we experience these moments that cause us utter and absolute confusion. We all do, right? No one escapes the pain and suffering of life like the old adage, if life hasn't broken you yet, you probably just haven't lived long enough. Some point, we face the reality and brokenness of the world personally, and we wrestle. Not only that, we wrestle with the collective reality of brokenness around us, Things like death, abuse, poverty, wars, crime, genocide, racism, famine, plague, and all other sort of destructive reality force us often to wrestle with a world that is absolutely broken and suffering, and yet in the midst of that we're trying to figure out how we can sing songs like everything you do is for good, you're so faithful. Yet it doesn't feel like that sometimes. And I think to further exacerbate the problem, and what I've found in my own journey, is that I think many of us have no idea how to relate to God in the midst of that sort of pain and suffering and devastation. Often when we're faced with that stark contrast where it feels like the wheels are falling off, we struggle to know how do we navigate the path of discipleship? What does this actually look like? sometimes it feels like we're going to steer off course. I heard one pastor say this week that oftentimes when we're in the places of suffering and devastation, we generally tend to err towards either the ditch of despair or the ditch of denial. I don't know about you, I err towards the ditch of denial. I grew up a pastor's kid. I learned to mask pain with the best of them. I know how when those moments come to stuff that down deep inside, put a nice smiley face on for the rest of the congregation so they don't know what I'm really feeling and at some point even deceiving myself where I don't know what I'm feeling. You can ask my wife how well I do this. I can ignore discomforting feelings with the best of them. What I often find is that when I'm in those moments, it's easy for me to look towards hope but not actually be real with the pain. But what I've also found in my ministry is that a lot of people err towards the other side, where they experience such devastation and brokenness in their life. They face those horrific moments, and it's so overwhelming that they just get stuck They're like a plane circling, looking for a landing place, but never finding it, and just circling the pain again and again, unable to move forward. And often that brokenness has left them unable to relate to God at all. Often these people are incredibly good at being honest and real about the pain of life, but struggle to see that there could be hope, that there could be something that God's doing in the midst of moving it forward. So how do we relate to God in the midst of our darkest moments? How are we called to handle the pain, the suffering, and devastation of life that all of us experience from time to time? What does it look like to relate to God when your world has crumbled and you aren't even sure if you can take a step forward, let alone figure out what direction you're going to move toward? The good news is I think God's word has some things to teach us and to help us when we're in that place. So this morning we're starting a six-week study through what I think is an often neglected and overlooked book in the Old Testament, the book of Lamentations. And I think as we study this book, we're going to find an ancient, a biblical, and a helpful path called lament. And lament is what helps us be honest with the pain of life, while also looking towards the hope that God brings in our hardest and worst moments. The term lament simply means a passionate expression of grief and sorrow. It's what happens in the moments where things become so overwhelming that they can't stay inside anymore, and at some point, they've got to come out. The book of Lamentations is a series of five laments, written in poetic structure, that are really written in light and response to a very significant event in the history of the nation of Judah. In order to understand a little bit of where this book goes and why it's important for us to kind of step into it and how it can help us, it's good for us to know a little bit of the background. So, the nation of Judah, it was originally part of the nation of Israel, which was one people that God formed and called, rescued out of Egypt and formed as his nation, his light to the nations, his covenant people and community. They were originally one nation, but in the failing of their kings, they split into two nations, the nation of Israel in the north and the nation of Judah in the south. In the midst of Judah was the center of the worship of the Jewish people, the city of Jerusalem with its temple where God's presence dwelt among his people. But ultimately, while both nations would walk paths of rebellion, the nation of Judah would experience a devastating reality in around 586, 87, depending on when you date it, B.C. The Babylonian Empire, which was the major world power at the time in the ancient Near East, responded to the nation of Judah with invasion. They would lay siege to not only the nation, but its capital city. The Babylonians would completely destroy Jerusalem brick by brick. They would set fire to the temple and burn it to the ground. They would remove its treasures. And worse, they would take Israel into captivity to serve them as slaves and to be removed and exiled from the land. For Judah, this was a horrendous experience for the people, one that left a permanent mark on their psyche. If you could take any of our kind of major historical events, think 9-11, think Pearl Harbor, think some of these major moments in our history, what happened in the Babylonian siege of Jerusalem is that multiplied by the effect on an entire nation that's laid to waste. It's incredibly devastating. The greatest devastation that they had ever experienced. And the author in Lamentations writes in response to this historical event. The author of Lamentations, some think is Jeremiah, although it's never explicitly stated, writes to essentially lament, to express the grief and anguish of what the nation experienced in that captivity and moment. And he does so with a highly poetic structure. Just to give you a lay of the land of where we're going, there's five basic lament poems in the book of Lamentations. Three of those poems, chapters 1, 2, and 4 in your Bible, are acrostic poems, meaning they follow a structure where each stanza begins with a subsequent letter of the Hebrew alphabet. There's 22 Hebrew letters, there's 22 stanzas in 1, 2, and 4. Chapter three is the middle and kind of pinnacle of the book, where that acrostic uh, style gets emphasized. Where it now contains an acrostic section, but where each line starts with the same letter three times. So, if in one, two, and four it goes A B C D E F G in Hebrew, in chapter three it goes A A A B B B C C C D D D. It emphasizes and sits as the center of the book. Chapter five, then releases all form of the acrostic poetry and essentially becomes a free-form lament that's written. Now, at some point you're like, why does it matter that we got to talk about ancient Hebrew poetic structure in this book, right? Well, I think it matters because what I want us to see and what's important for us to realize when it comes to lamentations is that this is a very well-thought-out book when it comes to lament. It is both an instruction but it also serves as an instruction for—an expression and an instruction for us. The author is not haphazardly expressing his pain at the experience of the nation. He's not just jotting down his emotional kind of whims in response. No, he's thought deeply and is bringing a deep sense of lament to God. The book covers the totality of pain and suffering. As one commentator put it, Lamentations expresses sorrow from A to Z. But the fifth chapter also shows that sometimes our sorrow doesn't fit into nice, neat packages. The book leaves room and space for those deep moments where maybe it doesn't fit the form that we like. The pinnacle of the book is chapter 3, which as we experience this study over the coming weeks, points us towards hope and is a dynamic climax within the story, but it doesn't end there. In fact, it goes right back in 4 and 5 into the reality of the suffering that they experience. Lamentation doesn't take our pain and wrap it up with a nice bow, slap a sticker on it and say it's all okay. Instead, it deals with the raw reality that we face when we hit the hardest moments of light, and yet it does still bring hope in the midst of it. There is a ton that we can learn from this book about how we navigate the most devastating moments of life, and we're going to unpack that over the weeks to come. But this morning, we're just going to simply begin in chapter one, and we're just going to look at the first 11 verses and kind of let lamentations lead us into the journey and place of lament what I want you to kind of see as we begin to unpack this text, and we're going to unpack it verse by verse over these first 11 verses, but I kind of want to give you the big idea that I want us to move towards in this. What Lamentations, I think, does from the beginning is it reminds us that lament allows us to honestly ask God the hard questions. Lament allows us to honestly ask God the hard questions. Lament does not skirt From the issue of suffering, it doesn't avoid God on one hand, and it doesn't avoid our problems on the other. You know, often when we're in the midst of suffering and devastation, when we're grieving, our mind is filled with questions. We feel confused, devastated, at a loss, wondering what's up and down and where and right and left and what to do. I can't even imagine what Judah must have been feeling in response to the siege of Jerusalem. But what the author of Lamentations teaches us that in those moments, we don't have to run from those questions. We don't have to ignore what we're wrestling with. Instead, what lament invites us to do is to bring our hard questions honestly before the Lord. And in these first three chapters, I think it encourages us to think about three hard questions that we can bring when we're in seasons of lament. The first one comes right away at the beginning of the first verse. Look at the text with me. It says, "How?" Okay, stop there. I'm so far in, but this word is crucial to understanding the book. The word that's translated "how" in your Bible is a very specific Hebrew word. It's the word "echeh," and "echeh" is really—it's an interesting word to translate because the word itself is both a question but it's also an exclamation it isn't it's it's kind of wrestling a little bit in that tension of saying it's like if you wrote how and then you put like question mark exclamation point question mark exclamation point you know how you like do that in a sentence. like that's kind of the idea it's both trying to make a statement and a question. And it's a key word in the biblical lament, both in this book and the Psalms, when we see it. One commentator, Christopher Wright, says that this word carries a sense of how come? How can this possibly happen? So from the very get-go, we're forced with the question of how in response to what he has experienced. And I think in many ways it leads us for the first question that we need to wrestle with when it comes to the journey of lament. How could this happen. And in the first three verses, he essentially elaborates and expresses how Jerusalem could experience this reality. Look again, it says, how lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow she has become. She who was great among the nations. She who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. She dwells now among the nations but finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of her distress. The prophet, as he begins to speak, he begins to question, how How are God's people experiencing this in this moment? He expresses the devastation that Jerusalem and Judah experiences and likens it to a widow who has experienced the grief of losing someone she loves so dearly. In fact, what you will find is that Lady Jerusalem is a character throughout the Lamentations in wrestling through the pain that was experienced on God's people. But it's not just that she's like a widow. Not only that how could it be that she's like a princess who's now become a slave? Someone has moved from the highest of positions in God's favor to seemingly the lowest. Not only that, Lady Jerusalem is likened to an unfaithful wife whose lovers abandon her and whose friends are gone. From the get-go, the author begins to relate the devastation and reality of what God's people were experiencing in this moment. Not only are they experiencing that, what he points to in verse 3 is they're experiencing a reversal of the work that God did among them. If you remember, the shaping identity of God's people is the exodus, where God steps in to their slavery in Egypt and redeems them out of their slavery and brings them to the promised land. But what happens in verse 3 is the opposite. They're being taken from the promised land back into exile and slavery where God had brought them to a land of rest, they now have no rest, where they were free from their pursuers. They've now been overtaken. And the question that lingers over all of this is the question of how can this be? When we're faced with utter devastation, this is where our heart runs. Because grief and devastation, they're overwhelming realities, aren't they? They cause us and challenge us to reconsider everything that we know. Grief is absolutely overwhelming. C.S. Lewis is one of the most articulate Christian apologists probably of the last 100 years or so. His books are very well known in writing about the truth and reality of Christianity. What most people don't realize is that later in his life, C.S. Lewis would experience the death of his wife, who he loved very deeply. And in one of his later books, known as A Grief Observed, he would wrestle with the reality of the pain and overwhelming grief that comes from losing your spouse. And at the beginning of that book, Lewis describes, I think, the overwhelming nature that we feel when we hit moments of devastation. This is how he opens up the first chapter. He says, no one ever told me that grief felt so like fear. I am not afraid, but the sensation is like being afraid. The same fluttering in the stomach, the same restlessness, the yawning. I keep on swallowing. At other times, I feel like being, I'm like being mildly drunk or concussed. There's a sort of invisible blanket between the world and me. I find it hard to take in what anyone says, or perhaps hard to want to take it in. It is so uninteresting, yet I want the others to be about me. I dread the moments when the house is empty. If only they would talk to one another and not to me. Grief has that overwhelming, paralyzing effect. And the reality is sometimes if we're not careful, we can get stuck in that place. We can be unwilling to go to the place that asks the question, how could this happen? Researchers have shown over the last decades of psychological study that those who experience devastating circumstances, especially in times of great social distress, and don't find an outlet to deal with that grief. Experience long-term psychological, emotional, and social issues. Grief is overwhelming, and if grief is not dealt with, you get stuck and experience something that's harmful to you. And this is why lament is important, because lament begins with the acknowledgement of devastation and grief. Lament allows us to be honest and ask the question, the hard question, how can this be? How could this happen? You see, the reality of the Christian faith is it's not an invitation to ignore the pain and reality of our world. Somehow I think we become misguided in the journey of faith and hope to think that means anything that's negative, anything that's hard, we got to push that away and ignore it. But the Christian journey is not the Lego movie. We don't have to go around going like everything is awesome. No, when you lose, when you're devastated, it's okay to ask the question, how can this be? And it's out of that place then it then leads us to the second question in the text. Look at verse 4. As he begins to move, towards the reality of the devastation of Jerusalem, he now recognizes that the worship of God has been removed and the presence of God amongst his people. He says, the roads to Zion mourn. Zion is a term often used of Jerusalem when it relates to worship and the worship of God that takes place there. He says, the roads to Zion mourn. For none come to the festivals. None come to the festivals in the way that we celebrated God. All her gates are desolate. Her priests groan. Her virgins have been afflicted. And she herself suffers bitterly. Her foes have become the head. Her enemies prosper because the Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. Her children have gone away, captives before the foe. From the daughter of Zion, all her majesty has departed. Her princes have become like deer that find no pasture. They fled without strength before the pursuer. Lady Zion is mentioned in this moment, and what we see is that the worship of God has been devastated as well. Where the presence of God in the temple stood that filled the city, it's now been turned to ruin. God's presence is found no more. Jerusalem is left utterly desolate. But it even continues to get worse as he expresses his lament. Look at 7. Jerusalem remembers in the day of her affliction and wandering all the precious things that were her from days of old. When her people, people fell into the hand of the foe and there was none to help her, her foes gloated over her. They mocked at her downfall. Jerusalem sinned grievously, therefore she became filthy. All who honored her despised her, for they have seen her nakedness. She herself groans and turns her face away. Her uncleanliness was in her skirt. She took no thought of her future. Therefore, her fault is terrible. She has no comforter. As he again describes the devastation of Jerusalem and what they are facing in this moment. He recognizes that they experienced the shame and violation that came with the siege of the Babylonians. Jerusalem is again described as a woman who's afflicted and wandering. These verses use heightened sexual language associated in that culture with promiscuity and the shame that would result in the ancient Near Eastern cultures. It's meant to shock us to recognize how devastating these people are experiencing the effects of what the Babylonians did to their city and to God's people. And at the end, it forces us to ask the question that seems inherent behind the text, what did they do to deserve this if it's this bad? And sometimes that's another question that we have to encounter in the journey of our own lament. What Did I do to deserve this? Well, the answer is actually given in two places in this section. Verse 5 says that they experienced this because the Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. Verse 8 says, Jerusalem sinned grievously, therefore she became filthy, and all who honored her despised her. The simple answer is that they deserve this because of their sin. God had warned Judah time and time again that their idolatry, their rebellion, their constant turning from him, their injustice and unrighteousness could not continue, and at some point he would return to deal with it and put them in exile. He warned them again and again through prophet after prophet. They ignored it, and God finally comes to bring his judgment. And what the text forces us to wrestle with the question of what did I do to deserve this is it forces us to face the reality of our sin. Now, we want to be careful here. Let me be careful. The correlation that is drawn in Lamentations between Judah's specific sin and the judgment that they receive is not a direct correlation that we should draw every time we experience suffering. Because you experience pain and suffering in your life, you do not have to go, oh, well, it was this sin back there, and I did it, so that for this is what's happening to me. That's not the correlation that needs to be made. While it's being made in this book, when we look at the larger canon of Scripture, we see that not every sin, suffering that we experience is directly tied to our own personal sin. The greater reality that we have to ask when we ask the question what do I do to deserve this is simply to recognize that sin is the pervasive reality of our world and that because of the collective human rebellion we all experience suffering because of sin. Let me be clear on what the scripture says. All pain, all suffering All devastation that you have experienced in your life is a result of the collective rebellion and turning from God and depravity of humanity that's resulted from us together turning from him. So when you ask the question of what do I do to deserve this, although we might not draw a direct correlation to a personal sin, what we can look at and recognize that sin is the reason. It is the brokenness of our world that results in our suffering and devastation. And lamentations and lament forces us to recognize the brokenness and sin of our world. Because when we lament, we, we mourn that things aren't the way they should be because of our sin. I recently had the opportunity to go to Washington, D.C. with my family a couple months ago, and a couple of the nights I got to take uh, my son, my nephew, my daughter to the memorials down and to walk through the Vietnam Memorial and the World War II Memorial and, uh, and the Korean Memorial. And, you know, walking through those memorials, I was, again, just struck by the sheer loss of life that's taken place in our history as a result of some of these wars. To see the endless names written to go to the World War II monument and see the stars representing thousands of people who gave their life in that war. And I was overwhelmed with the reality of the sin that exists in our world. Because you asked the question when you were there, what did these men and women do to deserve this, to give this sacrifice, to make this claim? They had hopes and dreams just like you and me, and yet many of them, their lives were cut short. Why? Because of sin because of the sin that is in our world. They memorialize and remind them of our lives, but even more, they memorialize and remind us of the brokenness that exists, and that's what Lamentations does. Lamentations memorializes the reality that sin is what leads to the brokenness that we experience in our world. And lament is important because it forces us to deal with the reality of the way the world actually is. The world is broken and lament forces us and causes us to question why and then to face the reality of how we potentially have participated in the collective brokenness of our world. And it invites us to turn from sin and to embrace the Lord. And so the question is, what did I do to deserve this? Reminds us of the brokenness. But finally, in this first passage, the text invites us to ask one more question. Up to this point, Lady Zion has been betrayed and spoken about by the prophet. But in the middle of verse 9, she speaks for the first time. And what she says is incredibly important. Look at what it says. O Lord... Behold my affliction, for the enemy has triumphed. The woman speaks, and what she calls for is God to see her affliction, but then she recounts the terribleness of the affliction she's experienced. The enemy has outstretched his hands over all her precious things, for she has seen the nations enter her sanctuary, those whom you forbade to enter your congregation. She likens the destruction of Christ what has taken place in Jerusalem, to essentially sexual abuse. The Babylonians would come in, destroy the temple, and take away all the items of the temple. And the words that she used to describe here, that they entered her sanctuary or entered your congregation, that word enter is a common Hebrew expression for intercourse, and that's the imagery that is used here. It's meant to shock, to recognize how deep the affliction of God's people was in that moment. One commentator says that the language here symbolizes in the worst possible way the utter triumph of the enemy. That in Jerusalem's case, the compounded tragedy is that she who had run after her many lovers among the nations and their gods ended up being viciously violated in the very house of the God she abandoned. Not only that, she goes on to liken her affliction to famine, saying that people are trading away what they have just to eat. She describes her affliction terribly and then she ends this section with the call. Look at the end of verse 11. Look, O Lord, and see, for I am despised. See, the ultimate hard question that we face in the midst of devastation in the midst of affliction, affliction, is God, do you see? Do you see me? Do you see what I'm experiencing and what I'm going through? When we face those moments, we feel naturally alone. We feel like God has turned from us. We don't like pain and suffering. We turn our heads from it, don't we? Like if you ever go on YouTube and watch a YouTube video of like one of those fail videos where like skaters wipe out, right? If you're like me, it's like as soon as the ankle hits the ground and starts to go the wrong way, you're like, "Ah, I'm out, like I'm done, right? Like to actually stare into the depth of even a glimpsing moment of brokenness, let alone the incredible pain that surrounds us in any moment, makes us uncomfortable. We turn from it. And yet, the thing we want more than anything in the world when we are in the place of devastation is for someone to see us, to truly see us in our pain, and to acknowledge the suffering and affliction that we're experiencing. And that's what Lady Zion calls out for. Do you see me, God? Look at this evil. Look at what I'm going through. Look at what the world has done for me. Have you turned your head, or do you see me? See, lament causes us to ask the question, God, do you see? And if you see, will you intervene and do something about it, or am I just left here on my Lament is an important part of the journey, as we'll continue to see, because not only does lament allow us to honestly ask God the hard questions, lament also brings us to the place to see the depth of God's response to those hard questions. Ultimately, Lamentations is written on the front side of the cross, And God's answer of whether or not he sees us in our pain and suffering is ultimately answered through the life and death of Jesus Christ. Because it's the gospel that reminds us that God does see us in our deepest pain and that God has done something about it and responded. And that the way that God has responded is by embracing the deepest parts of affliction and devastation. Jesus embraced suffering and yet was sinless. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Jesus was betrayed by his friends and gloated over by his enemies. He was led away as a captive by an occupying Roman government. He was pierced and desecrated. He was crucified, hung naked on a cross of wood as a rebellious criminal, even though he was innocent. Jesus walked the path of suffering so that we could take our questions to the cross and see God's answers. We should gaze upon the cross and lament, asking how could this happen, that the sinless Son of God would die in our place? We should gaze upon the cross and ask, what did he do to deserve this? Knowing that we deserve that death, yet he took it for us. And we should gaze upon the cross and lament, asking, God, do you see? Realizing that the Father turned his face away and that Jesus felt forsaken enough to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me so that you wouldn't have to be forsaken in your suffering? The questions we ask in lament not only allow us to face the reality of our own pain and suffering, they invite us to ask those questions of God's response and to see his answer. To see the deep work of the cross and how it brings hope to our souls. And as we journey through this book, we are only going to see more of how God works in that reality. But what I want to invite us to this morning is to simply step into and embrace the journey of lament. What's your own journey of suffering? What have you experienced that you need to bring honestly before God and to wrestle with those questions? What is it that you're facing now or have faced or may face in the future that you need to begin to wrestle with the reality of what God's word Says so as we respond, I just want to give us a minute just a minute in the quietness of our own heart to be honest with the Lord. What is it? What's the journey of lament that you need to embrace? Maybe you want to just jot that down on a piece of paper, maybe you just want to pray silently for a minute. Daniel's just going to pray, and we're just going to have a moment. You can bow your heads, close your eyes, whatever you need to do, but just focus be honest with God for one moment. Step into the journey of lament and you'll begin to see that God wants to lead you to a greater place of seeing how Christ can meet you where you're at. So let's just take a minute and then I'll pray for us in a second, if you would. that invites us to, to a place of authenticity, to a place where we can be vulnerable with you. I'm thankful that you're not a God that hides from pain and that you don't expect us to either, but that in fact you invite us to share, to cry out, to lament the pain and suffering that we experience in our lives And I'm thankful, God, that you're a God that has done something about it in the cross of Jesus. So I pray for my brothers and sisters as we wrestle this morning with the reality of our own laments, of our own journeys of suffering. I pray you would empower them to be honest, to be true and to real, to be real with you. If they're in that place like I so oftenly am where it's easy for me to deny, let them be truthful also if they're in that place of deep despair, let them see your answer in the cross of Jesus Christ. Let them see that you, Jesus, came and you suffered ultimately so that our suffering wouldn't have to be ultimate. And even now as we respond in worship, gaze, bring our attention and our affection back to your work on the cross. Let us proclaim it as your answer in a broken we continue to just worship you now and I pray all these things in your name. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.